brought it uh, to our attention and subjected it to a kind of sociological analysis that I think is extremely important. In particular, uh, in talking about denial, uh, this work uh, addresses a point that I want to emphasize tonight, uh, that of course genocides don't stop when the killing stops, that they go on, they live in our memories, and they live very much with the people who survive them and continue to live with their consequences, which is really the focus uh, of my attention uh, this evening. Um, despite uh, the early sort of disagreements that existed uh, about the, the volume of what was happening uh, in Darfur uh, in, um, in, in the earlier parts of this conflict in 2003, 2004, and 2005, in spite of uh, the disagreements that initially uh, were common about uh, the, the scale of what was happening, today there's, there's kind of a consensus that's emerging. Uh, in terms of the scale of, of the events. And actually, it's interesting to think a little bit about comparison with Iraq, where uh, there's still the jury is, is really out in terms of the scale of the violence that has occurred in Iraq. We have estimates of mortality ranging by a good half million uh, in size. Uh, in Darfur, uh, the estimate is at least converging to what we might think of as a confidence interval between two to 400,000 uh, dead and missing, and common estimates of about 300,000, and two to four million uh, displaced or affected by this conflict, with about 2.7 million uh, thought to be in the internal displacement camps uh, inside Sudan and also in the refugee camps across the border uh, in Chad. Uh, the latter uh, displaced persons or refugees are still in these camps uh, five years later. And it's extremely important to emphasize that point, which is where I want to begin uh, this evening. Uh, I also want to begin by thinking a little bit about how we define or understand genocide, which of course uh, leans heavily on the Genocide Convention of 1948, uh, which offers a very explicit definition of genocide in seven parts. I particularly want to emphasize two parts of this work. Uh, and, and of course the one that is most familiar to us is the idea that genocide consists of acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. So there's an emphasis here of course on deaths, on extermination. And uh, this of course also reflects the time when the Genocide Convention uh, was developed uh, after the Second World War and the Holocaust and the, the scale of killing that occurred in that conflict. But the authors of the Genocide Convention and their wisdom uh, cast their net more broadly and understood quite well the wider range of circumstances and events that needed to be taken into account. So that in addition to killing, uh, the Genocide Convention also talks about deliberately inflicting on the groups conditions of life calculated to bring about physical destruction and removal or disorderly part. So here we're talking about uh, displacement uh, rather than death, or what we might call elimination rather than extermination. And I will put my emphasis this evening on the latter, on displacement, on elimination, uh, although I will consider both, and I'll begin by talking a little bit about mortality and the kind of conflict that's gone on in terms of understanding uh, the dimensions of the conflict in terms of deaths and then how that relates to a focus that I think uh, is uh, at least as important, important on the uh, issue of, of displacement. 
Now, in doing this, I'm going to talk extensively about material developed in a survey that consisted both of closed-ended questions and open-ended interview uh, items and, and very narrative kinds of statements uh, in the interviews taken almost as witness statements uh, in this original research. This is work that was done uh, for the State Department uh, in 2004, July and August of 2004, uh, for a report called Documenting Atrocities in Darfur. This is a report that Colin Powell uh, used as the basis of his testimony uh, to the United Nations Security Council uh, and uh, to the uh, U.S. Senate Foreign Intelligence uh, Committee. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, at, at the Senate hearing, uh, Powell uh, distributed this uh, kind of eight-page kind of summary document that in a very kind of basic but important descriptive way identified some of the dimensions of this conflict. Um, but it's very important to keep in mind that this was a very large-scale survey. It cost about $800,000 to, to conduct. Uh, it was done in a period of about a month in July and August of 2004. In uh, 20 uh, camps and encampments surrounding the camps uh, in Chad, where refugees had fled uh, from violence uh, in Darfur. This map gives you a sense of the uh, sites where the uh, interviews were done and their location just across the border in Sudan, an area that was hard for the researchers to get to, but important, I would argue, to do so. Um, in particular, the, this uh, effort is unique because it involved collecting these data as the genocide was still happening, as the violence was still happening as attacks were still occurring uh, in Darfur. And um, so it was a real-time kind of uh, data collection effort. And um, it opened up possibilities that were not present uh, for the kind of work that was done inside Sudan uh, in the internal displacement camps, where the Sudanese government and its Ministry of Health could control uh, more clearly uh, the content, <coughs> excuse me, the kinds of questions uh, that were asked in, in the interviews. Um, across the border in Chad, it was possible to ask about uh, the attacks on the villages, the killings, the rapes, and so on. In Sudan, the focus was much more on malnutrition and disease and the kinds of issues that humanitarian groups uh, were more focused on in terms of handling uh, the work uh, in the camps themselves rather than trying to document uh, the dimensions of the genocide. Uh, per se. So it's an important, I think, uh, kind of landmark piece of work that deserves to be recognized as such, and hopefully it'll set a precedent uh, that will make denial more difficult uh, in the future with regard to these kinds of uh, events. Um, so just to give you a sense of, of how this was done, um, it's a random sort of sampling of uh, locations within the camps and selection randomly of individuals within what were called the households or the units within the camps. Individuals interviewed uh, uh, by themselves with uh, a translator uh, and the interviewer, uh, him or herself, in this case, uh, Jan Hunfelter, person who's done a lot of work uh, in the former Yugoslavia and then uh, also uh, in, in Darfur. Um, this map uh, gives you a sense of sort of the breakdown in terms of uh, the three major groups 
who were victimized uh, in the attacks, the uh, Tagawa uh, in the north of uh, Darfur, the Masalit in the west of Darfur, and the Fur uh, more to the, to the south. And we also have these images uh, that um, reflect the kind of scorched earth tac tactics involved in the attacks on the villages uh, and the uh, burnings of homes, the destruction of food, the destruction of wells, as well as the killing of the rapes that took place uh, in these, these settings. In the beginning, these satellite photos were sort of early evidence of, of what was happening. And the sense of the nature and the extent of these kinds of attacks is important to keep in mind in terms of the issue of displacement uh, as well as death and the prospect of ever uh, returning to these uh, Villages. Now, this is a complicated table that I don't really want you to worry about uh, in terms of detail, but simply to focus on this bottom line number. Um, we actually produced this table for the purposes of press release uh, in uh, the spring of 2005. And we did this because there was so much uncertainty about the scale of the killing uh, in Darfur. It was kind of our entry point into this work, and we were trying to use a combination of uh, the ADS survey that I've talked about and some of the UN World Health Organization work focused on malnutrition and disease to come up with some sort of transparent accounting of the scale of the killing that was occurring in Darfur. And these numbers essentially involve estimating that something on the order of 47,000 people were missing as a result of the violence that was occurring, about another 350,000 reported as killed or estimated to be killed using uh, the survey modeling of these data, uh, coming to a total of something like 400,000. Now at that time, uh, the number attracted a fair bit of attention. Uh, it was the subject of some of the demonstrations that were occurring about uh, Darfur. And more significantly, in terms of the conflict about uh, estimating the scale of this conflict, uh, it was used in some of the advocacy advertising by uh, Save Darfur in the United States and the New York Times uh, here in Great Britain. Aegis Trust uh, uh, also was involved in some of this work. And uh, the 400,000 number uh, appeared in these ads and attracted some amount of uh, controversy and uh, attention. Now, what we did not foresee or did not uh, uh, expect when we First, and I apologize in advance for this clumsy diagram, but it'll be helpful to make a simple point. Um, uh, we had not anticipated when we did this press release through the Coalition of International Justice in April of 2005, we had no idea that the State Department had now taken a different tack. Colin Powell was no longer Secretary of State. Um, Condoleezza Rice was now the Secretary of State. Uh, she had decided, uh, instead of sort of pushing the uh, international criminal law track in terms of documentation of genocide, to instead focus on negotiations uh, with the, the Sudanese government. And uh, the suggestion was that there would be a negotiated peace, uh, hopefully to come out of this process. Uh, Robert Zola was her deputy secretary, uh, who flew to Khartoum, here we go. This was also, of course, the period uh, when violence was really intensifying in Iraq in 2005-2006. And uh, the United States was looking for ways, and the State Department, the uh, CIA, the Department of Defense, were looking for ways 
to gain intelligence advantages in Iraq. Osama bin Laden, you may remember, had been in Sudan before he fled to Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, so there was a thought that perhaps also this was an opportunity to develop intelligence. So the head of the intelligence services in Darfur, General Gosh, flies to Washington uh, a CIA plane. Uh, we had no idea that any of this was happening, but it coincided with Zoleg also uh, making a move in terms of framing what was happening uh, in a reduced scale. Basically, he went to Khartoum, he refused to use the word genocide, and he uh, introduced a new estimate of mortality uh, the same week that we uh, issued ours to a press release in Washington saying that, uh, that something like 60 to 160,000 had died. Now, the significance of this is that it indicates something on the order of tens of thousands may, at the lower end of this estimate, have died, in contrast to the idea that hundreds of thousands, as many as 400,000, had died. Um, the news media responded to this in the way that I think was anticipated and began to report tens of thousands of deaths. And um, uh, Washington Post uh, uh, did uh, uh, a uh, sort of left-hand side, unsigned uh, editorial. It was actually written by their op-ed writer, um, Sebastian Malaby, uh, where he used our number in contrast to the 60 to 160,000 number, said the 400,000 had died and chastised uh, Robert Solick for, um, for uh, the numbers that he used and asked why he was, he was doing this. So the controversy was beginning to build. We were kind of under the uh, kind of a subject of this conflict uh, indirectly. We decided to try to do another estimate using different data, not from the State Department survey, uh, but the data more, more familiar to public health researchers from the camps inside. Darfur, and uh, we published an article in Science that, I, and I doubt you can read this, but uh, this kind of catch line to the article was that uh, hundreds of thousands have died, not tens of thousands. So what we tried to do was come up with a kind of baseline floor estimate below which it could not be sensibly argued that, that people were dying uh, in Darfur. The number we came up in this baseline floor estimate was somewhere in the area of 250,000. So we're trying to establish a range of what this mortality might look like. And um, I want to call your attention to something, and it's um, for my purposes just as well to criticize my own work or someone else's. If you look at these diagrams that appear in the article, what you see is that the estimates are based uh, beginning on 10 months into the conflict. And actually, on the left-hand side, you see that the mortality rates are going down uh, because people are only starting to stream into the uh, the IDP camps and the refugee camps, uh, the calculation then of a death toll uh, began to, at the same time, go up, and then later, as the violence subsided or was reduced, uh, come down. The point here is that this is only capturing the second major wave of violence uh, in Darfur that began 10 months into the conflict. And uh, so these estimates really are towards the lower end and uh, I think they give us an only partial picture that's misleading in a number of ways in terms of what happened in Darfur. It's a way of attracting attention to the issue, sort of piercing the impunity and denial that was associated with it, but it really did have its limitations. And I also want to emphasize that it had the effect of really sort of 
characterizing a genocide as something that happens, that's a, a kind of outcome, uh, a kind of static, one-time sort of sense of what a genocide is. And of course, that's not what genocide is. It's something that unfolds. In the case of Darfur, it unfolded more slowly than in Rwanda, which was a kind of more, as it was termed then, volcanic eruption of violence. It was more drawn out. And the consequences, as I've already indicated, continue to this day with uh, with millions, literally millions of black Africans uh, in these IDP and refugee camps. So I think there's something of a distortion that goes along with the effort to try to, in a preliminary way, sort of identify the scale of the uh, killing that occurred in this conflict and probably in others as well. It didn't have the effect we wanted in terms of the media coverage. Uh, the BBC, uh, as well as Reuters, jumped in their reports in the way we hoped they would. They started talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths again instead of tens of thousands. And uh, so, and ultimately the BBC at the end of this, uh, this uh, line graph gets up to 300,000. So uh, we get to get back into a, a scale that I think is, is appropriate. But we can already see with, with the ADS uh, survey, when we just plotted out the number of deaths without trying to use some estimated death toll, in actual numbers, but just to see the pattern, we can already see that there clearly were two waves of violence. Uh, an earlier wave from June, June to August of 2003, and then a second bigger wave of violence that occurred uh, between November and March, uh, November of 2003, March of 2004. And uh, so this is a different picture of, of the unfolding of genocide. And, um, I want to emphasize that this confusion exists to the current day. This is, uh, these are some uh, line graphs from an article that just appeared in Lancet in the last few months, uh, where I, I, I credit the authors for being clear. Let's see if I can make the point. If you look on the left-hand side, again, the first, uh, the first months of the conflict, the first year or so, are not included. And they're very explicit about this. Uh, so it's important to... Uh, uh, see that this kind of problem is continuing to affect our understanding of this conflict. Okay, so here's where I kind of change gears. I want to talk shift from talking about uh, extermination and shift to talking about elimination. Shift from talking about death to talk more about displacement or uh, forced migration, a number of terms we could use. Um, Alex Duvall, I think, has done some extraordinarily important work uh, from an anthrop anthropological sort of background. First on the famine uh, in the 1980s uh, in Darfur, and then more recently uh, on the genocidal violence, makes this kind of basic point that it perhaps is more appropriate in Darfur to talk about elimination as, uh, as a way of understanding this genocide than to talk about the, uh, the extermination of a population, or in other words, the mortality. Uh, he talks about the difference between thinking of genocide with a capital G uh, or with a small g, and start drawing this distinction between conventional understandings that are related to the 1948 uh, Geneva Convention, but do not fully take into account what that uh, what that convention includes. Uh, in other words, by not uh, focusing on the displacement and elimination as well. Um, I think it's important to understand uh, to think about. Uh, the nature of this displacement. If we think about uh, these camps now, five years beyond uh, uh, the peaks and in the and the, uh, the, uh, the killings and the rapes, uh, we have a population that now consists of young people, for example, 
who came as children and now are uh, on the verge of transition to adulthood, especially in terms of the circumstances they confront. So we have a whole generation that's disconnected from the ways uh, that their people and their villages uh, in Darfur had earlier lived. They're now living entirely different lives, disconnected from that earlier life and the tactics and strategies that were involved in surviving uh, in those villages at an earlier point in time. Uh, in a sense, you could think of genocide in Darfur then as being kind of an anti-livelihood crime, a crime that's focusing on the destruction of the ways people were living there. Uh, ways their lived experience connected with the environments in which they live. And this goes back again to Alex uh, DeWall's work, uh, who, when he studied famine in Darfur in the 1980s, uh, made this uh, remarkable point about how uh, these African groups uh, actually survived in conditions of famines, how they would plot out uh, the storage and protection of foods, and as that food would diminish uh, steadily uh, in amount, uh, constantly sort of trying to make sure that there was some left if they would survive and could continue. And so the uh, wall actually talked about how people could, could die in Darfur of starvation while they still had food uh, that they buried and stored and tried to preserve in some way, hoping that they could make it another day, that they could go on, that they could reestablish their lives and so on. Uh, it's that kind of vulnerability uh, in sub-Saharan Africa uh, that is a, a key part of the subsistence of these groups and their lives uh, in this setting that I want to emphasize and understand in relation to this issue of displacement. Uh, one way of making a point is used in the uh, Physicians for Human Rights uh, article where they sort of do these diagrams. They're kind of interesting, I think. They sort of, in this case, talking about uh, groups that are largely involved in farming but nonetheless have animals and, uh, and actually these animals are a way of sort of uh, banking capital, uh, not, not uh, having currency and putting them in the bank or something, but, but having uh, goats and sheep and camels and so on, horses. Uh, and uh, just uh, to illustrate one particular family, this report uh, does this kind of diagram where it's showing, although the, the two uh, uh, the two uh, heads of this family, the father and mother, survive, and a few of their children survive, and they have their grandchildren. Almost all of their livestock is killed. And uh, it's a crucial part of losing the way of living where they were living, having to flee from Darfur and winding up in these uh, IDP camps and refugee camps. Um, so we wanted to sort of find a way of theoretically understanding this, and I'm not going to belabor the theoretical part of this too much uh, involves an attention to the Arabization policies prominent in, in the Sudanese government, uh, the demonization of other groups, and particularly black African groups. Also emphasizes the role of the, the encroaching deserts uh, in this area, the desertification of sub-Saharan uh, Africa, and the competition for resources, particularly involved uh, the hooded herding groups that many of you will know about, the Arab groups uh, in Darfur who practice a way of life built around herding animals, uh, bringing them across uh, uh, the Darfur region uh, to market, uh, needing access to grazing land and to water for their herds, and coming into conflict increasingly given the growing scarcity of food and water uh, in this, uh, this area of Africa 
coming into conflict with the farming groups, the uh, black African groups, uh, Sagawa, the Masalit, and the Fur, uh, who we talked about earlier. I want to emphasize uh, partly the element in a kind of social construction of race that occurred in relation to this conflict. Some of you or many of you would be familiar with this. Uh, um, most of us would have difficulty uh, distinguishing the Arab and non-Arab groups uh, in Darfur and probably would not do it in racial terms, although in this conflict, as a sort of instrument of, of the conflict and division in this setting, uh, increasingly, there was an effort to, uh, to racialize the conflict, to identify the black African groups as black. Uh, but uh, much of the distinction is as much a part of their livelihoods, their language, uh, as, as skin tone, uh, which uh, individuals in this area would argue to set, uh, is, is a basis for distinguishing the groups in terms of subjective ways or conceptually. Uh, but as much a matter of livelihood language uh, as it is a skin tone. So very much a social construction of race and used as for instrumental purposes. So what I'm really interested in is in focusing on the idea of uh, racial intent, uh, uh, focusing on how race is used as a way of motivating people, people who might otherwise be uh, thought of as normal, ordinary sort of members of the population get involved in killing, raping, and, and so on. So, Lots of examples of these racial epithets. Uh, I won't talk about them in any detail or really even repeat them, uh, but really just to make the point that uh, in lots of different ways, as the attacks would occur uh, in Darfur, the Sajanjali, the Arab groups would attack uh, the, uh, the villages along with the government of Sudan's troops, and I'll emphasize that point in a moment. Uh, they would often shout these racial epithets, and it becomes a part of the way the conflict uh, builds um, over time. But more than this, actually tonight, what I want to do is to emphasize the role of food and water, uh, insecurity uh, circumstances in terms of living uh, in Darfur in a day-to-day -day way uh, in, in the period when this genocidal violence was occurring. I want to emphasize the role of the vulnerability of the black African groups uh, in Darfur. I want to emphasize the idea that because of their vulnerability, uh, that there was an opportunity, especially as the Arab groups became better armed and prepared to engage in the conflict and the violence, there was a vulnerability that became an opportunity, an opportunity criminologists, uh, I think, have argued in a sociological way, importantly, opportunity can breed motivation, can build intention. And so this vulnerability and opportunity is a key, important part, I think, of understanding uh, how this conflict evolved uh, in Darfur and how the displacement in particular uh, took place. Arable access to the arable land in Darfur became extremely important uh, for grazing and herding purposes, as well as for purposes of raising crops and subsisting uh, in this uh, sub-Saharan uh, environment. So access to land is everything. Now, it's possible uh, to think about this uh, genocide in terms of command responsibility. And for legal purposes, it's important to do that, to understand the chain of command. And we've made an attempt to try to understand that in terms of from the top down, uh, President Sudan and Moral Bashir, through a deputy minister, Amoud. Um, Ahmed uh, Harun, who played a crucial role in organizing 
the violence, uh, organizing the local Shanji League, uh, distributing weapons and uh, some amounts of money, uh, and mobilizing these groups to take advantage of the opportunity uh, that they had with this kind of support to engage and uh, take the uh, take the land from the local villagers and, and farmers. But this kind of an organizational chart really, I think, again, kind of portrays what's happening in a kind of static way. And uh, again, the real point here for, for our purposes, I think, is to think about this more as a process that unfolds and how it takes place. Uh, so the challenge, uh, I think, is to demonstrate the increasing role that the government of Sudan played uh, through its armed forces in leading attacks uh, with the Janjaweed militias uh, against the black African groups. We need to establish uh, that this was how this violence occurred and how the displacement uh, was forced or made to happen, uh, this alliance uh, between the government of Sudan forces and the Shanjali militia. Uh, we also need to know uh, how this government was involved in the unfolding process and what continuing consequences of this, uh, of this would be. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about two different things. I'm going to talk about the attacks on the villages and farms, and I'm going to talk about the displacement that resulted. Now, one of the unique things about this atrocities documentation survey, which is the foundation for this analysis, is that it involved an extraordinarily detailed attempt uh, using investigators as interviewers uh, to ask very specifically about all the things that happened during the attacks, when exactly these attacks occurred, if there were repeated attacks, when those attacks occurred, and how things unfolded in a temporal kind of way. This allows us to look at this as a temporal process. Now, I'm not going to talk about the statistics behind this other than to say that these are event history models using proportional hazards, the idea is trying to assess the risks of the attacks taking place. There's something on the order of 2,000 attacks. And then understanding that in relation to the actual displacements, which involve these uh, about 1,100 uh, individuals who take part in the survey and reporting on their displacement uh, uh, elimination, in effect, uh, from their floor. Now, first thing that we wanted to do then was to look for the waves of these attacks that we think are important in terms of understanding the government's role in them. Uh, if it had only been the John Jolie who had been involved in these attacks, presumably it would have been a kind of slowly building process uh, that unfolded over time, uh, but not particularly uh, determined by periods of time or waves of the conflict. And the lowest uh, line uh, in this uh, diagram at the bottom uh, reflects the involvement of the Shanjali. Now, there are two ways to their involvement. Uh, the bigger wave, of course, uh, is uh, in the latter part of the diagram. So Shanjali uh, become more involved as the government uh, becomes involved. The middle lines uh, in this figure is not an attempt to distinguish the, uh, the land attacks uh, by the government of Sudan forces coming in on their um, Land rovers and land cruisers uh, with uh, weapons uh, uh, mounted on the back of these vehicles, uh, storming into the villages and the attacks 
very much about Kelly and destroying uh, villages, but also there was uh, the use of bombing, so we wanted to sort of distinguish the two. We're able to show that they both follow these two ways uh, in their occurrences when the government is doing this uh, on their own. But in particular, what we were most interested in was when the government of Sudan forces were operating together with the Janjaweed. This is what the top line in this figure uh, identifies. And what we see are two very clear waves uh, in the figure, and the first wave is uh, reduced in its scale compared to the second wave. So this is a this is a an organized uh, state-led uh, genocide pattern of genocidal violence and these attacks uh, that grows in intensity and uh, unfolds in an organized and uh, systematic way. Uh, so that's just sort of a basic picture uh, of the attacks. Now, we also uh, then wanted to think about the role of racial epithets uh, that I mentioned earlier. Racial epithets are extreme in their nature. Uh, I think of them as playing a kind of role that Alex Hinton and others have talked about uh, as involving the sort of effort to generate a kind of um, fury or frenzy uh, in the midst of these attacks. And it's a way of uh, sort of uh, getting people to do things they wouldn't ordinarily do. Um, um, another uh, person who's been involved in this research, uh, Rick Brooks, a uh, law professor at Yale, has talked about this in terms of as the conflicts unfold, uh, the individuals who are storming these villages kind of signaling to one another what they're going to do before they do it, and uh, sort of taking assurance or encouragement in a kind of frenzied, furious way from one another, building that kind of attack mode that we associate, you know, more conventionally with something like sports or football or something of that sort. But in this context, of course, it's a part of the military. Uh, force as well. And um, uh, so we wanted to think about this role of racial epithets and uh, further sort of identify how it might be connected uh, with the involvement uh, of the uh, government of Sudan uh, forces. So this next, um, this next diagram uh, has down below, first of all, the government forces involvement uh, in racial epithets as the refugees had reported them in the timed uh, attacks that they reported in the surveys. Uh, this, uh, the government's involvement on its own kind of declines uh, over, or actually, actually, in terms of reporting, seems to stall out. Uh, the Janjaweed continue to be involved in the attack alone, and alone and increasingly. But again, it's the Janjaweed and the government forces attacking together where overwhelmingly these racial epithets are most likely to be heard. And uh, it occurs in the first way, but it overwhelmingly occurs in the second way. A suggestion that the government's uh, involvement, uh, the training that's uh, well documented in other ways uh, of the Janjaweed, uh, included this element of motivating the attacks uh, in these racial terms. Um, some of you may know that in the reporting of the Darfur conflict, there's something of a separation in the way people talk about it, or the way journalists have talked about it. Uh, uh, I'm more familiar with this in the New York Times, but I suspect it's true in Great Britain as well and elsewhere. In the New York Times, there's a systematic pattern you can see. Uh, in the uh, news part of the newspaper, uh, with accounts of particular attacks and conflicts 
uh, are reported. The uh, there's, there's apparently a journalist, uh, apparently a policy in the New York Times, of talking about it as a conflict between Arabs and non-Arabs. On the editorial page, when someone like Nick Kristoff would talk about the conflict, he talked about a conflict between Arab groups and Black African groups. So a, a clear division there. Our data speaks strongly to the argument that Kristoff uh, has made that we make in our book that this was a racialized conflict uh, as well as being uh, organized in other ways. And the final uh, challenge um, is, I think, to further show uh, how this plays out in terms of the displacement. Now, remember I said earlier that there are reports of about 2,000 attacks in these data. Uh, the displacements include about 1,100 individuals who actually are removed or flee uh, to the camps uh, inside and outside of uh, Darfur. So the final change is to show again with just the displacements, the role of the racial epitaphs, the role of the government of Sudan forces along with the Janjaweed. And then finally, I want to draw attention to what the nature of the attacks were. I think I mentioned in the beginning that in the survey, the interviewers actually tried to separate out 35 different kinds of uh, incidents. And these are defined in, in criminal terms, in terms of everything from burning down their houses or huts or living places to destroying their crops uh, to the rapes to the killing to the physical beatings, uh, a wide range of kinds of attacks that could have taken place. We were particularly interested in what is the role of food and water? How is it involved in the destruction of these villages, in destroying the conditions of life, in the second meaning of genocide that we talked about at the beginning of this discussion? How is this destruction of food and water linked in to destroying the possibility of these people continuing to live where they live? And how that relate to other uh, forms of the attack that the attacks took? Uh, in Darfur. Now, I'm not going to belabor these numbers and the only numbers I'll show and skip over them quickly, but just to know that the first model is showing the role of racial epitaphs. The second model is talking about obsoletes as victims and uh, the combined attacks. The third model is the point I want to emphasize where there's actually an attempt to, in terms of levels of risk, identify how important the different forms of attacks were. And killings were clearly important, but targeting food and water was even more important. Uh, and attacks involving uh, food and water compared to other sorts of attacks beyond those identified uh, in the table, uh, there's an increased risk of displacement of something like 228% higher. Uh, killings also greatly elevated the possibility or likelihood of risk of displacement. But food and water is the key thing here. So we tried to sort of, again, sort of do this graphically to make it a little bit more clear. The first of these figures uh, is showing, again, uh, the combined role of the, uh, the government troops uh, with the Janjaweed as uh, more responsible for uh, the displacements that occur. And then in the end, this is really the figure that I regard as most important to what we're trying to do. It's sort of saying, you know, at the lower level, other sorts of incidents uh, are involved uh, in some level of the displacement, burning down the places where these people live for a part of it, uh, but uh, the killings are at a higher level. And then finally, the attacks on food and water are really kind of the low 
for that ends the possibility of holding on to their uh, places and uh, their, the way they were living their lives uh, in Darfur. There are numerous uh, narratives uh, in the interviews that we've drawn to make this point. This one is provided by a 40-year-old Sagawa woman uh, who lived in the north of Darfur. She talks about an attack involving the government troops along with the militia. In January of 2004, pretty much at the peak of the second wave, they killed many people and they poisoned the water well. They poisoned the well by killing a donkey and throwing it and other dead animals in the well. A common way of poisoning the wells, chemicals also used up. Uh, they took their food stocks and again they separated men from the women and uh, killed the men. Uh, so this attack on the way of living in this kind of environment is absolutely crucial. Uh, we want to argue uh, to this process of displacement. Um, I just want to say a couple of things and then I'll stop uh, about uh, how things are in Darfur today. Um, in 2003, we had these satellite uh, photographs that nicely capture uh, the level of uh, the kinds of scorched earth, scorched earth kinds of tactics and the level of destruction of, uh, of these villages and uh, the vegetation. Uh, in Darfur uh, during this period of the violence. Already by 2007, uh, vegetation had returned, and so the possibility of returning to uh, life in, in practical terms, in terms of uh, living on the land, presumably were already available by 2007. Uh, the problem is the insecurity of doing so, uh, the uh, protection of food and water, as well as the people themselves. Uh, if they would go back uh, to try to live in Darfur. Even though almost all of the respondents in a recent survey uh, have indicated uh, that they would want to uh, go back to their, uh, their former lives in Darfur. Um, much of this later data comes from uh, a uh, attempt by a young group of researchers to go back to the Chad camps. They replicated the State Department survey sample design but ask new questions and uh, just call your attention to two findings in this 2009 survey. First of all, confirming that it's uh, the security issue, uh, including the food and water issue that's crucial in the minds of these people in terms of the prospects of moving back, no matter what kinds of agreements uh, seem to be worked out. And then finally, uh, the suggestion is, is frequently made that, uh, you know, that the the efforts uh, of the International Criminal Court to use international criminal law as a way of dealing with this conflict through prosecutions and the indictments against President Omar al-Bashir and several others uh, in, in Sudan. But these indictments are destructive in the sense that they jeopardize the conditions of the camps. And certainly the Sudanese government does continue to mistreat the <coughs> camps, and that's a very serious and continuing problem. Food and water reported uh, today reports in northern Darfur very, uh, for several months in, in the, the, the largest of the camps, called uh, Talma. Uh, but notwithstanding all of that, um, the people in the camps overwhelmingly uh, want the International Criminal Court to proceed with its work and do not regard this as a, a threat that they would want to uh, halt uh, this sort of process. So thank you very much for, for your, your, your uh, patience and support the questions, although I think that's it.
have a little time, I think that's some kind of BJS graphic. Indeed, 
the reading up in the last few days work that's been published in the last few years about Darfur, it's manifestly apparent that going there um, is not really a priority. In fact, those who don't go there or only go there for a few days generally have the strongest and most passionately held views about it. As Alex Deval has uh, observed, particularly in the United States, an industry has emerged of analysts and lobbyists who assert opinions very strongly, usually based on uh, selective engagement with the reportage of Human Rights Watch, the ICC, National Criminal Court, and the um, ICG, other organisations, who themselves might not actually um, have done any local level research. Indeed, having opinions about Darfur often seems to have little to do with Darfur and much more to do with developments in the United States itself. To some extent, that's true in the UK as well, I think. The other night, a um, doorbell rang, and there was a young lad on the doorstep. He said, would I sponsor him? Um, and I said, what for? And he said, for Darfur. I said, why? I said, well, the terrible things are happening there, he told me. So I invited him in. And it's interesting, I asked him why he was more concerned about Darfur than southern Sudan, or the Numa Mountain region, or eastern Sudan. And he looked at me completely confused. It was clear that he had no idea that Sudan had a south, and that Darfur was in Sudan. Insight for him. For him, for him, and I don't mean to sound patronizing here, he was very passionate about it, but for him, Darfur represented wickedness, <coughs> oppressing, killing, and enslaving the most vulnerable and needy. It was not really about facts, it was as much about the need to protect against dark forces and than understanding what had happened. The more he spoke, the more it sounded like Darfur could be a place in a Harry Potter book that I haven't read yet. Ruled over by, you know, he who cannot be named. Um, he wanted the world to be a better place. And Darfur, whatever it is, whatever it means, whatever, wherever it's located, um, somehow represented that crusade for him, that, 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 that issue. Um, I gave him five pounds in the end and asked him, I gave him a book to read and said, come back and talk to me about it, which he did, which I thought was quite, quite nice. Um, he wanted to change the world and make it a better place. Which leads me to my third concern about commenting uh, on the paper. Um, immersing myself recently in the literature on Darfur makes me concerned about saying almost anything. Um, people I respect and admire have very different views about it and tend to attack each other ferociously, ferociously whenever they can. Um, I fear that putting a toe in Darfur, the debates around Darfur, is likely to result in it being chopped off. And I haven't met John before, so I thought possibly, um, you know, he might be someone like Mahmoud Mandani, and I would be slightly nervous about saying you know, critical things about Mandani in a meeting like this, because I've seen him chop people's toes off. <laughs> so anyway, how to proceed? Well, what we have here is a paper that engages with some very important issues and makes arguments that implicitly 
or reject or set aside those made by others. A curious aspect of the written paper, and I think also John's presentation, is it's a little bit like one hand clapping. Now, I don't mean that in a critical way, actually, unlike most of what's written about Darfur, most of what I've heard about Darfur, um, what, Jen, or what John has said is phrased in a moderate, thoughtful, and precise way. A lot of what's written about Darfur is not like that. But it actually diverges from the positions of others working on Darfur in fundamental ways without making that explicit. So I thought perhaps it would be useful to draw out some of those controversies. Now obviously I can't discuss all the other hands that are clapping in the other direction. But I'll make a few comments about two of them. One well, I've already mentioned, someone who's not cited in John's paper, um, and I don't think he mentioned him uh, in the presentation, Mahmoud Mangani, um, and the other somebody who John cited repeatedly, both in the lecture and the presentation, Alex Gavar. I thought perhaps it might also be a idea to broaden the discussion a little bit and contextualise it and to raise some questions that reading the paper has prompted me to ask about my own words. I have little to say about the specific facts that John uh, presented. Um, I think with a few provisos, um, certain facts are generally agreed. Everyone accepts that some individuals, everyone perhaps, apart from those individuals themselves in the Sudan government, accepts that an elite group in Khartoum has been connected with terrible atrocities in Darfur. In 2003 and 2004, an aspect of the war in Darfur between rebel groups and the Khartoum government were attacked by basically uh, groups that perceived themselves as Arab, different Arab tribes, against groups that perceived mainly by those Arab groups as in some way African. They were also paid, we know this, by the Sudan government, and there is evidence that they were acting under instruction. Large numbers of so-called Africans were killed, and much larger numbers forcibly displaced. All of this is accepted. In September 2004, the US Secretary of State, Colin Powell, concluded that genocide had been committed in Darfur and that the government of Sudan, the Janjaweed, bear responsibility for that genocide and it is still occurring. Point um, made in John's paper, he alluded to it towards the end of his talk, is that in the, in the paper he, he argues that the genocide is still occurring now. It's certainly the case that further attacks have occurred um, and the statement has continued. But around that issue about whether or not genocide is occurring now, or what sort of words should be used to describe what happened in 2003 and 2004, that's where there are real issues to think about quite seriously. John notes at the start of his paper, I should say, and he said this bit about numbers, but I'll just be very brief about it. John notes at the start of his paper that there's a growing convergence in estimates of the numbers affected. He, he refers to, and he had a slide out as well, 200,000 to 400,000 Darfurians have died and 2 to 3 million have been displaced. But they're actually rather vague estimates when, when one thinks about it. 
Um, but those estimates have been very important indeed. Mandani, amongst others, has noted that those promoting the idea of genocide with respect to Darfur seem to have basically made the numbers up. Now, John is trying to show how he and his group didn't make the numbers up, but it has been a huge problem. Take the New York Times that John mentioned. Um, in 2004, the number that were reported dead was 320,000. In 2005, it was 70 to 220,000 in February, but became 400,000 in May, and it was then 300,000 in April. Um, so these figures have been thrown out there in, in the media, and it's rather undermined the credibility of those who've been pushing the genocide argument in Part of the problem, of course, has been dead from what? Instrumental killing or starvation and disease. And a really crucial issue for those using the genocide label is do the latter count? And can they be linked to an intent to destroy? Mandani, it should be noted, also plays the numbers game in his book. Um, in which I think he plays it in such a way as to try to have his cake and eat it too. On the numbers, he notes that in the uh, 2006 US government audit, um, the Government Accountability Office got together with the Academy of Sciences and appointed a panel to work out what the best estimates were, and came up with a much lower figure than that that John was referring to, came up with 120,000 from the World Health Organization as being the best estimate of whom 70 to 80 percent had died from hunger and malnutrition. Now Mamdani, in his book, uses these figures and a general discussion of the conflict in Darfur to make some provocative points. I won't go through everything he said in his book, but two key things I think are relevant here. On the one hand, he argues that a more objective analysis of the data reveals that the situation in Darfur is a horrible war, but it is misleading and counterproductive to call it a genocide, in that it turns a political situation with a long history into a moral one. He traces the origins of the origins of the, he traces the origins of the war back to the 1980s and the colonial history of the region, much as he does in Mandani's um, views on the intent to destroy argument are that the, that, that, that view has not been, not been proven adequately. He points out that the uh, African Union uh, analysis critiqued it and argued that there was no evidence of intent to destroy in the sense of intent to destroy an entire population way of life. Uh, as the head of the African Union at that time said in 2004, um, what we know is that there, is an, there was an uprising, a rebellion, and the government armed another group of people to stop that rebellion. That's what we know. That does not amount to genocide from our own reckoning. It amounts to a course of conflict. It amounts to, to violence. According to Mandani, Besides inflating the consequences of the conflict, the use of numbers, the exaggeration of numbers, 
it, it uses the word genocide, the use of the word genocide is blatantly a political attempt to depoliticize the issues by uh, presenting support for one side as a moral compulsion. On the other hand, and I think here is where Mamdani is trying to have his cake and eat it too, um, he seems to want to, um, he seems to argue that um, when we look at the numbers who died in Darfur, it's rather similar to the numbers that have died in Iraq. And so he says, well, if there's all this discussion about genocide in Darfur in the United States, why shouldn't there be discussion about genocide in Iraq and you know, the state that is in control of that country at the moment is, of course, the United States. Um, it's a very provocative argument, and he pushes it quite hard. There's been some interesting discussion about this on websites, which some of you may have seen. Less controversially, and here I, I, I am really with him, less controversially, he notes that very many more people have died not so far away from Darfur, in eastern Congo, in northern Uganda, but again, there seems very little interest in using the genocide word for those places. Why is that the case? Now, Dani's answer is, well, the finger points to the US proxies, proxy states in the region. <coughs> now, I don't want to, I don't have time to elaborate it. It relates mostly to my own work in, in regions, but the things that I saw when I worked in northern Uganda uh, a few years ago, before those camps began to break up, were some of the worst things I had ever seen in Africa. At the peak, in 2004, there were almost two million people in those northern Uganda camps. In some of those camps, people were living in their own excrement. Seriously, living in their own excrement. There were a few pit trees that would overflow through the village, I would watch children sitting there in their own excrement all day long, banging their foot, frightened to leave the camp. The Ugandan army nearby attacking them if they left. Uh, often in the camps at night when they were attacked, and I saw what the Ugandan army did to people. Uh, Alara Tulu has argued that what happened in northern Uganda was a genocide being perpetrated by the Ugandan government. And he uses very similar arguments to those that John presents. But in fact, he has more ammunition. You can also look at the, 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 the violent control of those populations by the Ugandan army. As things too that I would actually disagree with, that the Ugandan army was deliberately infecting the population with HIV and a whole host of other But now, I, I don't necessarily agree with what Alara Batunu has said, but what's interesting is here is somebody, a respected figure, a former Undersecretary General of the United Nations, um, President of the Security Council, actually, at the time of the first Gulf War, who, when he retired from the United Nations, the first thing he did was to talk about the genocide in Northern Uganda. But his position is seen as compromised because He's had a long series of conflicts with President Stephanie. He's now become involved in Ugandan politics. Maybe that's the reason. His arguments are strong ones. They've been published in foreign affairs, various journals. But there's no interest in pursuing that kind of argument. Indeed, just a few weeks ago, we had the review conference of the International Criminal Court Rome Statute Treaty, where 
in Kampala, hosted by President Museveni, who is positioning himself as a beacon of human rights in the region with support from the United States and the United Kingdom. Across the border in Rwanda, we have President Kagame, an incredibly intelligent man, much as Museveni is, who's always seems to be three steps ahead of the game. In 1997, in a matter of three months, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees lost more people under the protection of that organization than the total cumulative loss from 1951 up to that day. When I interviewed Agatha about it a few months later, and I said, what do you think about it? At first she wouldn't talk about it, but after a rather intense emotional interview, she said, you know, your haunts my dream. We lost contact with those people and we don't know where they are. The head of Oxfam at that time was with a group of US Army personnel who were sent out there to look at what happened and took aerial photographs. I didn't see the photographs myself. The head of emergency at Oxfam said he saw them and he saw those people on those aerial photographs where they were being attacked. But when those photographs were made public, all those people had been taken out of the picture. He said to me at the time they'd been airbrushed from history. Not it seems quite airbrushed with the leaks that are coming from the internal UN reports that tend to confirm that some kind of revenge genocide did occur in eastern Congo in 1997. And the finger of course, to the Rwandan government, which is a, um, a close ally of the United States. The United States blocked the investigation of Rwanda in the Rwanda Tribunal uh, when Kagame asked to, the prosecutor was removed. So I think there are really important issues here as Mangani invites us to um, think about in relation to what is the function of the use of the term genocide and why Darfur in the United States? Why not Uganda? Why not Congo? Now, Mandani's response to all of this is absolutely clear because um, the uh, arguments about genocide in Darfur are all to do with uh, US strategic interests, and in other places they're not accounted to them, and so they're pushing the car. But I, I, I want to put a more positive gloss on the sort of work that John and others are doing in this respect. I've not convinced myself about the genocide lately. But it is incontrovertibly clear that terrible things have happened in Central Africa. Really terrible things. One of the things that I have found most difficult with some of my work on the International Criminal Court when I go around and talk about the role of the court is how time and time again people say the court is persecuting Africa. If that court is set up to deal with the worst of crimes, they haven't happened in Iraq if all human beings count the state, they've happened in Central Africa. That's where the court needs to be. So I'm very committed to the idea of us looking very seriously where we can at what is happening on the ground to see whether lines on the sand can be drawn and that Africans, this part of Africa, can be treated with the same kind of dignity and respect as would be the case for citizens in other parts of the world. So I think there is a case in trying to look at whether or not legal definitions of genocide apply in specific cases. 
while I accept that there are issues about why they are poor and not elsewhere. I think, particularly with the term genocide, though, there are issues. Um, pushing back the boundaries of the, definition, of the definition of genocide raises quite serious issues about the usefulness of the term. Now, here I want to switch to Alex Devar. John doesn't cite Mangani, as I've already mentioned, um, maybe because he feels his views are too extreme. Also, Mahmoud is not at his best when he's writing about the details of what happens on the ground. He's better with the broad sweep of things. Um, and he is a polemicist, and he has a particular agenda. There's all sorts of reasons why John might choose not to use Mandani in the kind of work that he's doing. But he does quote Alex Duval repeatedly. Um, and this places him, I think, in an awkward position, John. Although, although not one that he reveals in the paper. John's analysis of genocide, and in particular his arguments about the wording of the Genocide Convention, about deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, built directly on the work of Alex Duval. John has made this clear himself. Particularly Alex's work on family crime, as well as his more recent work on uh, genocide in other parts of Sudan. Also, as John notes in his paper, and also in his talk, Alex argues in a publication in 2005 that what is happening in Darfur is not genocide in the sense of absolute extermination of a population, but does fit the broader definition of the genocide. <coughs> Yet, Alex currently argues that the genocide warrant for President Bashir is basically stupid, that the ICC prosecutor is an incompetent buffoon, and that talk about ongoing genocide in Darfur is absurd. To quote Alex from just last week, actually, Darfur has led to a new genre of social science from afar, pivoting on the question of is or isn't it genocide, and using the reportage of Human Rights Watch, ICG, ICC, etc., as the basis for constructing the case. The idea of a genocide in 2003-2004 is at least up for serious debate. The idea of a continuing genocide based on what is happening in the camps is a bad joke. Anyone who says the parallel with something, 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 this situation, that situation, is clear, is stuck in the point. It's clear only to those who are already convinced. I'm not. Now, one response to this position, this position of Alex Duval at the moment, might be that Alex has become involved directly in the Darfur peace process negotiations. He's an advisor to the Mbeki Commission and to the African Union. It may be that his position on the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and on the genocide charge, 
discussion about genocide is affected by the difficulties it has created in an already very difficult peace process. Nevertheless, when John writes in his paper, the millions of black Africans who have now been in Sudanese displacement camps and Chadian refugee camps for more than five years make genocide a continuing reality in Darfur. The tasks of explaining this persistent reality and enumerating its genocidal scale persist. Alex's response to that, like Mandarin, would be, why? Why should we do that? What is the function of doing that? What purpose does it serve? Does it really help us understand what's happening? And does it contribute to alleviating suffering? And his answer, like Mandarin's, would be no. Now, it may be that there are other factors at work in influencing Alex Dyer's views on this. But Alex is a very thoughtful and honest analyst and is sometimes at his most insightful when he seeks to take apart the view that one might think he would ascribe to. No one's better at taking apart Alex's previous papers than Alex himself. In fact, I sometimes feel that you know, trying to critique Alex is like trying to get at someone who's on top of the, top of the way. You get there and you see that he's on the next one coming with another, another paper. He produces new ideas uh, at extraordinary uh, speed. But he has written some very interesting papers about why he's changed his position, if that's what it is. He would argue he hasn't changed it exactly, but he's elaborated it in a new way. Um, and in particular about the naming of genocide in Darfur. He wrote a paper about this, which is called um, Reflections on the Difficulties of Defining Darfur's Crisis as a Genocide. So what does he say in that paper? He said, under the broad definition of the 1948 Convention, the crimes committed in Darfur are undoubtedly genocidal. But applying the Genocide Convention in this way and emphasizing the term genocide over and above other heinous crimes against humanity has complications that must be addressed by both the genocide scholars, both genocide scholars and human rights activists. In his paper, Alex traces the emergence of the genocide label with respect to Darfur, and like John, finds that the survey in 2004 amongst refugees in Chad revealed a pattern that fits a broad definition of genocide in the Convention, in particular intent to destroy. The findings, he points out, came as no surprise to any of us, including me, should be said, to those of us who've been working in Sudan, and were similar with findings that many of us had had from other parts of the country dating back to the 1980s. Alex points out that at least five previous campaigns by the Sudan government, waged by governments in Khartoum, um, qualify as genocide. And he uses, he coins quite an interesting term in this paper, one that I think is, is well, worth, well worth thinking about, well worth using and, and, and seizing upon. He calls this use of the term genocide in Sudan counterinsurgency genocide. And he explains how and why it differs from established usage. 
one really key aspect of it is that we cannot imagine the Jews playing a leading role in the Gestapo during the Holocaust. And we cannot imagine Bosnian Muslims being involved in the killing of Muslims in Trebrenica. But when it comes to counterinsurgency genocide, that kind of thing happens all the time. Also, like Mandani, Alex knows that if this broad definition of is applied, then it's going to apply in very many other places too, where the evidence is even more overwhelming. So, he points out in the paper, the choice of Darfur has to be put in the US context, where it has taken on a particular momentum that is unique in relation to domestic US politics. He does that rather interestingly and insightfully in the paper, not so differently to Mandani in some respects, it should be said, but I won't go into that. What are the features of counterinsurgency genocide that he highlights? Well, there are five aspects to it. First, the group targeted violence has evolved into the context of a counterinsurgency campaign against a rebel group of some sort. So Alex is meaning here can use this term elsewhere too. Second, much of the violence has a racist, in the Sudan case, Arab supremacist dimension. But equally significant, the government has sought where possible to use divide and rule tactics utilizing non-Arab proxies to have the people, the local people involved in the process themselves. Third, most fatalities have occurred through hunger and disease, consequent of displacement and destruction of livelihoods. Fourth, the violence has identifiable peaks and lulls, the latter occurring when the government has accomplished its immediate military goals. In the case of the Nuba Mountains, it scaled back its goals, um, but it changed, it, 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 it scaled back its goals and shifted towards military containment rather than outright victory. So, backed off. The fifth point the episode prior to Darfur in Sudan, those other five cases, were all ultimately resolved through peace negotiations, though there is an unanswered question as to whether that peace will hold. Now these are very different situations to what happened in the Holocaust in Europe or in Rwanda or it might be argued in Bosnia. Can a genocide of this kind be said to have ended until the government involved no longer has the capacity to do it again? Alex also writes about his own choice of the use of the term genocide for what happened in the Nuba Mountains when he was working for African rights. Alex used the term genocide in that work and in the book about it, talks about it as a genocide. He explains that they chose the word genocide to attract attention to what was happening in that region. But he now has mixed feelings about having done so. And he explains in some detail why among other problems, he argues, the danger of the word genocide 
is that it can slide from its wider, legally specific meaning to a branding of the perpetrator's group as a collectively evil. It turns this, uh, it turns this, uh, this and narrows options, in, sorry, in turn, it narrows the options for responding. Having labelled a group or a government genocidal, it is difficult to make the case that a political compromise needs to be found with them. This leaves only various forms of pressure, such as sanctions, prosecutions in a court of law, and of course, military intervention. Sanctions rarely work, prosecution is by definition too late for the specific crime in question, military intervention is a clumsy tool that runs serious risks of failure and of um, inflaming the violence. He also notes in the paper that the idea of America as global moral arbiter does not travel very well. <laughs> and as that implicit in the use of the word genocide for Darfur is our moral calibration, genocide is worse than other crimes against humanity, and thus the question whether the atrocities in Darfur qualify as genocide is tantamount to minimizing, denying, or excusing the crime. This is, he says, surely a distortion. The crimes and blunders in Darfur are complex and fit uncomfortably at best with the category of genocide. For the purposes of stopping the killing and prosecuting those responsible, the use of the term genocide may initially help draw attention to a disaster, but it has, in the Darfur case, he argues, subsequently become something of a distraction to effective action. And he concludes by stating, though consistent with the genocide convention, use of the term for Darfur, and for similar situations in Sudan and elsewhere, expands the boundaries of what has been customarily recognized as genocide, and therefore potentially creates new barriers to the alleviation of suffering. In his more recent work, he would no doubt add that there is ample evidence of that having happened. Now, I part company with Alex on several issues, not least his antipathy towards the International Criminal Court and his campaign against the prosecutor. But he has a point. The uh, Yugoslav Tribunal and the International Court of Justice found that Treblinka was a genocide. In a way, that was the starting point. It shifted the meanings of genocide in the way that the term is usually understood into something slightly different. And now we have a process of pushing it further and further away from that generalised conception. We now have a use of genocide as a kind of Nobel Prize in reverse. An allocation of wickedness imbued with a moral argument that severely limits compromise. In addition, and dangerously, the term still carries the connotation of being the worst of the worst of crime. Yet it's now possible to use it in ways that apply to crimes that are very bad indeed, but not quite as bad as that. There is a separation between the general notion of what the word means and how it can be used in practice and 
and perhaps most importantly, in a court of law. John wants to push that process farther, talking about false displacement and genocide. Like Alex, I'm unconvinced that it's such a good idea. Killing 7,000 men and boys, mass force displacement, systematic racial abuse linked to instrumental violence, deliberate starvation. These are dreadful things. But establishing procedures in which they are conceptualized as genocide may well, in practice, prevent them from being prevented or stopped. It may well make things worse. Basically asks, well, is this really genocide? 
Um, and uh, so I'm going, he said, well, I know all these things happen. They were horrible and awful, and they occurred on, the fire, uh, on a really huge scale. But on the other hand, are they genocide? Is it uh, somehow complicated or, um, or prevent the possibility of our doing good work in this area by, by uh, suggesting that they constitute genocide? Um, now, I think, I think there's every reason to take that, that uh, conceptual risk uh, in the context of Darfur. As I said at the beginning, uh, I think that uh, uh, the consensus actually about what happened in Darfur is much uh, stronger than it is in Iraq. Uh, the range of estimates are much wider in Iraq, much narrower in Darfur. That, that's of interest in itself, and they're on a high scale, so I don't think them uh, without uh, some, some considerable um, concern uh, in that regard. Now it's important that even though, even though Tim indicates that he acknowledges that terrible things have happened and so on, uh, the suggestion is that we all know that, but we don't all know that. We don't all act on it. Um, the, uh, the special envoy to Iraq, uh, uh, who is the presidential advisor to the United States uh, Scott Gration, uh, a while ago uh, referred to what's happening uh, in in Darfur's remnants of genocide. And uh, indeed, the U.S. government has become more timid in responding to the events in Darfur today than it was, than it was the previous administration, which was not certainly ideal in, in any respect. Uh, so we have this kind of ongoing kind of uh, process that, in, in effect, kind of represses, disavows, pushes aside, reinterprets uh, the events that have occurred and they're, they're continuing. Consequences. I regard it as extraordinarily important and consequential that between two and three million black Africans are removed from their villages and farms and remain in camps uh, inside Sudan and across the border in Chad. I regard this as evidence of a continuing genocide. Uh, and I think it's important to keep in mind that I'm not uh, unique in this regard. Indeed, the appeals panel at the International Criminal Court reversed the earlier pretrial panel that refused to issue a warrant uh, for genocide against President al-Bashir on grounds not in some ways the parallel with Tim is saying today, but an appeals court in that said, lawyers uh, arguing on legal grounds have actually argued that indeed there are reasonable grounds, reasonable grounds, the kinds of probabilistic thinking that we use in social science uh, to investigate uh, these events uh, as genocide. I think we should do no less and indeed have an obligation as social scientists uh, to do more. Um, in particular, what I want to say then is that I think it's extremely important to do this kind of work, uh, to put it in the context of genocide and crimes against humanity, or we can even call them mass atrocities. But the point is to, to identify them as very serious crimes and to pursue them seriously and begin to actually understand, document and understand and explain what happens. And that's what we're trying to do uh, in this paper. We're trying to understand genocide as a process, to see how it unfolds, how its consequences can continue, and to study it in that way. Uh, I, I, particularly want to avoid is a kind of endless debating of whether to call it genocide or crimes against humanity uh, in, in a way that actually can often stand in the way of doing that actual uh, on-the-ground research uh, and analysis. Uh, 
I do think that Shrebrenica that Tim brought up is important in this regard. Uh, in the context of Shrebrenica, we have events that I would perhaps disagree with Tim in terms of whether they're similar or different from John Four. This represents a limited context in which the court, the former Yugoslavian tribunal, determined that uh, genocide had occurred. There's an imbalance between the killing and the displacement that uh, parallels that in Darfur, except that it's on many, by many orders of magnitude, larger in Darfur. And Srebrenica's estimates are 78,000 uh, killed, uh, 30, 40,000 displaced. Uh, I want to go back and look at those numbers again. Uh, but it's uh, that kind of multiple that I have in mind that's similar in many ways to what happened in Darfur that I think are, is important to, to take into account. Now, I don't hear a lot of uh, debate about Srebrenica should be called a genocide today. That matter seems to have been closed, and, uh, and I think uh, there's continuing recognition of that in ways that are extremely important. I look forward to the prospect that that may be true of uh, Darfur uh, as well, uh, and I think there's extremely important research to be done 